Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before this episode begins, I have some back page projects to tell you about. Let me begin with Pep's City, a new book by Luis Martin and Paul Balus who have been embedded with Manchester City for much of the past three seasons. I've known Lou for years, most of my time in Spain. He's not only a fantastic storyteller, he has contacts that you would struggle to believe because in the modern era, journalists aren't supposed to get that close to football people. He does. In fact, he's close friends with Pep Guardiola and all his extended family. Indeed, Pep, along with some colleagues, wrote Pep's only, to date, autobiography just after he left Football Club Barcelona in 2001. Lou and Paul gradually earned total access to Manchester City and you'll see that reflected in the description of the structures, the idea, the atmosphere, the people, the anecdotes. I think along the road they both fell a little bit in love. It's a good page turner. It will bring you right inside the heart of this project telling you about Guardiola's emotions, ideas, when he's tired, when he's ebullient, who helps him, which players fall in and out of favour. It's everything you'd want from an inside story. Whether you're interested in City or separately in Pep Guardiola or any of his superstar players or how a huge operation like that looks from the inside, you'll find plenty in this book that you didn't know. Next up is Astroball, The New Way to Win It All by Ben Reiter. Even if you don't speak baseball, if you're interested in where any pro sport and especially elite football is heading in terms of recruitment, data and optimization, then you need to read this inside account of how the worst team in baseball were turned into serial winners thanks to a strategic revolution. It's Moneyball, the next chapter. And while I have, while I have your attention, are you, are you paying attention? Neil and Martin, who produce this show and whose voices you probably love hearing every now and again on the question and answer sessions, they've got another podcast called Between the Lines. It's interviews with sports writers who explain the stories behind a book or a piece of long form journalism. It's the medium I like most when you get somebody to explain how something works how it came together, how it was constructed, how it was planned. I love hearing things like that. It calms me. It interests me. And I guess that there's a thread of that running through what we try to do in the big interview in that when we get elite coaches or footballers sitting down with us, we want them to explain. We want them to tell the stories from inside out. Lift the lid, I think it's called. This is most certainly what um, this new podcast that Neil and Martin produce 
does successfully. It's interviews with sports writers who tell the stories behind a book or a piece of long-form journalism. A new season of this podcast is running right now. It features excellent writers like Oliver Kay of The Athletic, Andy Mitten, who interviewed Diego Maradona for 442, and the season will close with a documentary about a much-loved football book, The Miracle of Castel di Sangro. Subscribe now, please, to Between the Lines by Backpage and get the new season as it goes out, plus great archive interviews, including Henry Winter, Mike Calvin, and some fella who wrote a book about Spain's tournament treble. From Backpage, my name is Martin Gregg, and this is part one of our big interview Q&A for October. The questions, as ever, come from our sponsors at Bet365 and our socios at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, where you can sign up to access one additional full-length big interview every month and other exclusive content, including the audio versions of all of Graham's columns for ESPN. On the line from Barcelona is Graham Hunter. And Graham, we are going to start with an interesting one from one of our socios, James Lloyd, who I'm not sure we've heard from before. So thanks for emailing in, James. I really appreciate it. And he asks, with Marco Silva clearly out of his depth at Everton, could Marcelino be the man to take the club forward? Judging by his time at Valencia, he got the players playing for him and gave them a structure to play attacking football. Mr. Lloyd, welcome to the show. Let's stay in touch, baby. Eh? Play Misty for me. It's funny how Marcelino has become the absolute go-to next candidate for Everton. Um, Is it because he looks a little bit like Mr. Silva? Um, Is it because he's out of work? Um, There's like a karma I always used to find when I was working um, in newspapers and working on the transfer market. If you worked hard enough and used your brain and and looked around and investigated, rather than being specifically tipped, about 60 or 70% of the time, you could figure out what was pretty likely to happen next, which centre forward would probably be moving to which club, which coach would probably be next, just by being diligent. So, uh, Mr. Lloyd, James, Jimmy, if I can. I think it's a stick-on appointment. I'd, I'd, I'd like because, you know, the more I get to know managers, the more sympathetic I am to the plight they have when things are going wrong. And because I can't be um, at, I don't know if it's still Belfield, um, but because I can't be at the training ground um, there, I, I can't say, is it out with uh, Marcus Silva's control that things are so um, puny? compared to the resources. You know, I have affection for Everton and, and for it to turn around from Marco Silva and get right would would, would please me. Um, it's, it's still patently clear that they've brought through some good footballers. And I, I take a look at the squad and there's no way, absolutely no way they should be in the position they are, which presumably is what fuels your question. Now, Marcelino, I've got the highest regard for. He is um, an intensely difficult man to work for. It probably is sufficiently famous now that I may not be telling you anything new but at his, at his most manic he will make the players be weighed three times a day three times a day now I know that with my particular metabolism I could definitely if I went absolutely raj put on half a stone in a day 
but an, an elite footballer can't. And he will, never mind getting the calipers out and pinching the body fat and, you know, making the calipers penetrate the flesh if somebody's got a little bit, you know, can pinch an inch. He's obsessed about weight. And if you talk to any of the players that he's had at his, his very best spells, which would probably, not exclusively, but would the very best would be marching Villarreal back up out of uh, the Segunda here into European contention. And then what he did at Valencia, I thought was was wonderful. Genuinely, absolutely, heartwarmingly extraordinary. And I, while there are, uh, there's two things to say, well, there are more attractive brands of football than his. And while I thought at, uh, at Mestalla, he, he, he clearly evidenced himself as part of the two divisions of coaches that there are. And I'm not talking about good, bad. There are a division of coaches who say, I have to have my team playing a brand of football that my squad can cope with. In other words, you take the resources and you devise a playing idea like Ancelotti did at Real Madrid when he was ordered that he had to have Ronaldo and Benzema and Bale up front. He wanted Di Maria in the team. And the way to have Di Maria in the team was to ask him to become a midfielder, not a wide forward, not a second forward, because he can play brilliantly as a 10, Di Maria. But he actually had to become a working midfielder. And they made their debut of that formation, I think, up at Espanyol um, in the... Was it Ancelotti's second year? I think it was Ancelotti's second year with Paul Clement at the helm. And he redesigned the team into a 4-3-3 with Di Maria as a brilliant uh, working midfielder. And there are the other coaches like Marcelino who are like, here's my formation. That's it. Untouchable. I won't move. You've all got a... Everybody's out of step but me. And therefore, Carlos Soler, his brilliant footballer, uh, uh, brought through the ranks at Valencia, who's made to play both wide left and wide right, but was a naturally a 10. In the second season of Marcelino, when Valencia were f in the first half of that second season, failing to score, failing to win regularly enough, um, looking arid, looking confused, a really cool solution would have been to get more creativity by putting Carlos Soler at the 10 position in a 4-2-3-1. So the middle of the three behind the one. And he had the two to anchor the defence, to sorry, to protect the defence, to take the ball off the defence's toes and to feed the four men in front of them. And and he wouldn't. He wouldn't think about it. He wouldn't countenance it. And, not, and the logic about it wasn't about Soler. He had the, the personnel and the skills uh, to, to evolve and he just wouldn't do it. So just as when um, you get, say, Machin moving uh, into Espanol and you absolutely know what you'll get is a 3-5-2. You know with Marcelino you'll get 4-4-2. But it will be a 4-4-2 with people, uh, players who are expertly drilled and who he bears a resemblance to is Rafa Benitez. Because if you talk to any footballer who's worked for Rafa Benitez, they will tell you and I'm leaving Pep into a, Pep Guardiola in a category of his own. They will tell you that the most demanding individual one-on-one -on -one sessions they've ever had are with Rafa Benitez, where he will unpick your every movement. You could probably have a boot lace 
out of place. And Rafa Benitez would notice, castigate for you, castigate you for it, hammer you for it repeatedly until you fold that bootlace the right way. But half turns, body shape, your right foot being an inch too too wide open compared to your left foot, you know. <laughs> Whether your your left eyebrow needs shaving so you can see better peripherally. That's the kind of detail Benitez would go into. I'm on I'm on only slightly euphemistic there. And so does Marcelino. It's 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 a fierce physical regime in that his teams are just under the way in which I think Bielsa is self-destructive in, in running teams into the ground in a, in a vain attempt to make them ultra fit, which often leads to them being knackered. Marcelino's teams, I think, uh, shade on the, on the positive side of that in that when you work for him, you're exhausted by the end of a season. You're starving throughout the season because his food regimes make um, Juan de Ramos at Spurs feel like Louis XIV. Um, yet he's got an extraordinarily clear football brain. I think he understands rivals very well. His record, if you want to... I mean, I talked about Villarreal, and I think that's important because to take a side up from the second in, in Marcelino's first year in charge and then to make them Euro-competitive... And f- fun to watch. More fun to watch. I think they were more open. They were more fun to watch than maybe Valencia were. I, I, I like Valencia's players and I enjoyed covering them. But, the, you know, the brand of football is, is, is very clear cut, very schematic. Not dull, not defensive. Don't think that for a second. So the, the, the thing that you have to bear in mind is that at Villarreal, his captains rebelled. And literally, two senior players went to the president in the beginning of the season that um, that Marcelino was sacked with a Champions League qualifier uh, coming up. I forget, but I think it might have been against Monaco. I, I may be wrong there, but certainly two senior figures in the, in the dressing room went to uh, Reutsch, the, the, the president of Villarreal, and said, we can't stand him. We can't stand this anymore. It's it's him or us, Musacchio being one of them, and it, and it it was a combination of the harsh regime, the boot camp regime that you live under, and it was a combination of this this man is an Asturian. He uh, the, the the previous season ended with Villarreal completely where they had to be safe, uncatchable. Last game of the season, playing Sporting Gijón away. Sporting Gijón is the club that Marcelino supports. Sporting needed to win another results to go their way to stay up. Um, Marcelino basically put together a, a, a Wurzel Gummidge week of training for VRL ahead of the sporting game. He, he didn't tell them to go out and lose, but he undercooked them and they lost. And his wife on social media went, yeah, sporting have stayed up, you beauty. And the players didn't like that. They, they wanted to be competitive until the last minute of the last day. And, you know, uh, President Reutsch at VRL took a view and bumped him at the beginning before just before the season began and that was ultra dramatic and it changed him I know um, that it changed him he went that's the kind of loyalty that's the kind of um, payback that I've engendered for working and training the way I do and he just modulated a little bit his his interpersonal skills 
his building of relationship with footballers. And therefore, you saw in the first season, a squad that played superbly at Valencia made the semi-final of the cup, uh, made the top four, qualified for the Champions League. And in the second season, oh, pardon me now, have I made that up? Uh, yeah, that, that's that's right. And in the second season, um, played in the Champions League, got to got knocked out just um, by a group that had United and uh, Juve in it, despite beating United at Mestalla, and then went to the semi-final. You know, got a tonking in the end from Arsenal, but uh, went to the semi-final of the Europa League, won the cup against um, Barcelona down in the Benito Villamarín, and. What you saw midway through that second season that James, I think, is is important is that when he was struggling, when the goals weren't going in, when it looked like Peter Lim might sack Marcelino, every single player, every Valencia player was was busting a gut for him. And when they finally made a breakthrough win that sparked the surge up the table, the cup final win and the fourth position again, um, they won it. I'm certain it was at Celta Vigo and the players went looking for him. I think it was Rodrigo in particular, but the players all mobbed the coach in celebration that they'd given him the breakthrough that he needed. So Marcelino, yes, he's a superb coach. I think there's a positive argument that he's the number two Spanish nationality coach working in Europe right now behind Pep Guardiola. And if it's sadly the case that Everton decide that the current Iberian manager um, is no longer the right one, then persuading Marcelino uh, to come would be a good idea on, on, on this premise. The owner, the staff, the media, the fans would have to be crystal clear about what they were getting. Because even without knowing intimately the personalities in that Everton dressing room, there would be several players who would be shocked to their core about what life under Marcelino is like. And if you start at the beginning of a summer in charge of a new club, you can weed out players during the remainder of the market. You can sign new ones. Mid-season, although there's a Christmas market, there'll be some players he's he's stuck with with whom he may not be able to forge a bond or, or, or who may just go, well, you know, if if I if I withdraw my labour, this next this new Spanish coach will be gone, and I'll still be here. That's the nature of footballers' contracts. So, James, under certain circumstances, and that's about education, about who they were signing. If they sign Marcelino, then I'd be thrilled to watch. And he aspires to work in the Premier League. Of that, there's there's no doubt. And and basically, he got the tin tack at, at Valencia because he wasn't playing the youngsters that the that the owner wanted to see sufficiently. Ferran Torres, Kang in Lee, particularly, and it's one of the most unjust dismissals that I've dismissals that I've ever known. But owners are allowed to do that. Owners are allowed to say, "I I, I see a different direction for this club," and that's what the, the statement that uh, Lim's deputy, the president, Anil Murti made. He said, we, we saw things differently. The coach saw things differently from us. Therefore, we've parted company. That's, you know, that's within the scope of somebody who's trying to make the club he is a majority shareholder in move in a particular direction. But Marcelino, would I hire him? Well, yeah, as long as Aberdeen aren't in the market for a coach, then I would say, yeah, go, go for Everton. Just a quick follow-up. Does, does he speak English? Yes, um, I, I wouldn't. Um, people often ask me this about characters I know, and because I speak to them in Spanish, I can't be a first-hand witness. But I know he has some English. 
I know that he's a very diligent and organised man who wants to work in the Premier League. So my opinion is that people will be surprised once he moves to England, whether it's Everton or not. People will be surprised about how 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 well he's able to communicate. He's not somebody who wants to sit there and entertain the media. Um, he'll get in there, get his job done, be polite and move on. You know, it'll be a, it'll be a 15 minute press conference, not a 35 minute one. But I think, for example, if you want to take yardsticks, um, Pochettino's English is very good now, but it took him a long time. I think um, Marcino would get there more quickly. Unai Emery has made a big effort to learn, you know, his second new language in a row, having, worked at Paris Saint-Germain in, in more than passable French. Um, but he's still not ultra clear-cut in, in his phrasing um, at the moment. He's, he's like Pep was in Germany, reached a certain level, and then it strangely slightly began to, to flat plane or even deteriorate. And Marcelino, I think, would be, would be a clearer communicator than that. But he knows that working successfully in the Premier League a prerequisite is English. So whatever the state of his English today as we speak, he's somebody for whom that wouldn't become a barrier. Okay, on the subject of Spanish coaches, second question is from our sponsors at Bet365 and relates to another former Valencia manager, Unai Emery. Um, the question is, will Emery see the season out at Arsenal? Um, I would just add to that, obviously, out with the 1-0 loss to Sheffield United on Monday. It's not been a disastrous start for Arsenal. I mean, they're fifth at the moment. I think they're two points behind Chelsea in fourth. Um, so, Graham, could you maybe reflect on, on, on Emery this season? Do you see signs that he is successfully building something at the Emirates? No. Um, given how much I've watched him, uh, I'm, I'm disappointed. Not necessarily disappointed in him, but certainly disappointed for him because, you know, I thrilled to the, the side he built at Almeria, which was quick and aggressive and threatening and, and regularly knocked over the big boys. And then the things that he did, he did a very similar uh, job to Marcelino at Valencia, which is that while the club was selling the stars from underneath him, Villa, Silva and Mata being simply the most obvious ones, he consistently qualified for... Um, the Champions League and to my mind brought forward a brand of football that you know I found thrilling to watch and it's it's patently obvious that um, even including a success at Paris Saint-Germain the standout time for him was at uh, at the Nervion where uh, three straight um, Europa Leagues was not just Guinness Book of Records special it allowed a complete overhaul of the club. Um, he blended brilliantly with Monchi. There hasn't been, I don't think, including Juan de Ramos, I don't think there's been a better synchronicity between the, their their you know elite talent spotting, uh, football philosophy building, head of sport, Roman Rodriguez Monchi, um, and a coach. Than, than there was between him and Emery. It was it was special. I've watched Emery change a lot over the years in that, you know, when I first began to study him um, and and go to his press conferences, watch his team, interview him just once, uh, he admitted about having been an, a deeply nervous footballer, somebody who would crap himself the night before games. This is by his own, his own phraseology. And he was an ultra jumpy 
a Tasmanian devil coach on the touchline where he, he almost wanted to, I mean, I've never played these FIFA 14 games or whatever they're called now. God, I've exposed myself there. These online, these, these thumb jabbing games where you can control the player's movement. He kind of wanted to do that from the touchline. And he was down on his haunches. He was hopping about. I often tell a tale that whether it was with Valencia or Sevilla when he came to Camp Now and the lines in the technical areas were, were either paint or chalk, he'd be stomping around that um, that um, technical area so much that by the end, the home coach's technical area would still have the white lines fully intact. And his the, all the lines left, right and behind him would be destroyed would be practically non-existent because he tramped back and forward over them sort of Bielsa style and he changed that and he really evolved at Paris Saint-Germain because it's the biggest club he'd worked for it was an institution um, he was working for a government in effect I think and he he's, he found that there were certain modes of behaviour which were um expected of him he found that man managing Neymar was a task that he could enjoy and thrive at and become quite philosophical about uh, compared to the the tasks he's he'd had which was much more about individual coaching he's got very set way that of of how he wants his team teams to play, what energy levels you, he wants, how quickly he wants the ball moved forward, what kind of width he wants. He's he's again he's a coach with a, an extremely clear philosophy, and that's why I'm disappointed. I don't know um, whether um, this is a guy who lasts the season, and I'm not complaining, but it's a slightly unfair question because it's very very. Uh, throw the grass leaf in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. Right now, as you pointed out, it, it's where they're at is not disastrous by any means whatsoever. But what I'd hoped to see was uh, an embodiment of the Unai Emery football personality coming through much, much more clearly. Now, I don't know the damage it did him or not starting to work with Sven Mislintat and then Mislintat leaving. I don't know for certain um, how important it was that they got Edu in sooner um, because Raul Sanlehi is the deal maker, whereas w what patently is needed at Arsenal is they've, they've brought players in, but I'm not certain that they've yet brought the right players, and it's still a version of the same argument that's dogged Arsenal since Arsene Wenger lost the place, which is where is their ability to to close a game? Close a game either by doing it aggressively on the front foot and saying, you're not getting back into this game, or close a game by saying, okay, we switch, we switch off the creative stuff and you don't get past us now. They don't have that, and that's, that's a mental thing, a physical thing, it's a strategic thing. It's a leadership thing. It's a philosophy. It's a character across the squad thing. They don't have it yet. So the neutrals can watch them, I think, with huge enjoyment, but they bear no relationship to the the, 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 the thrilling, flooding forward stuff you got from Sevilla at their best. There are definitely traces of, and it goes beyond the fact that they've got, you know, thrilling, flooding forward players in Alba and in um, Pepe when he's on his game. Lacazette um, and it's my opinion that once Tierney is fit 
he'll add the type of character that I'm talking about um, in that he is a born competitor, winner, who'll add more than... I hope he plays at fullback. It should be at fullback. Um, more than simply just good fullback play. I think, although he's probably one of four that they need like that across the team. So, hello, Bet365. Who do you blame? Do you, when, when things aren't right, do you, do you blame the club? Do you blame the signing team? Um, usually what happens in real life is it's the it's the manager who carries the can. And I'll add to their... I mean, I'll go to their question and I'll say that, in my opinion, there is quite a big threat um, to Unai in that while Arsenal would like to keep him and have, in my opinion, got the right man, there now that Edu is his director of football, director of sport, I, listen, whichever title it is he carries, he's a big fan of Patrick Vieira. And we've come out of an era where Arsene Wenger didn't like his, his big, big name guys coming back. So when Titi Henry finished his coaching badges and wanted to, or was finishing, and wanted to come and take sessions at Arsenal so that he could just basically complete off his final badges. So this is before these days of um, coaching at Monaco or uh, with Belgium. Um, he phoned up Wenger and Wenger was like, yeah, okay, you can come in. And, and, basically laid on nothing for him, sent him to the furthest away pitch. There was nobody there to greet him. Wenger had gone home. There wasn't any kids laid out for him to to to, to work with properly. And Henri was held to be somebody that, because he'd spoken frankly about Wenger's Arsenal and Sky, was, if not quite a persona non grata, um, wasn't to be treated as a club legend. And when there was a recent, I think two, three weeks ago, there was a recent celebration of Wenger's um, era and achievements and there was no Henri there. And Vieira is another one who expected to be asked to be to be subsumed into the club structure in the way that they're very intelligently done with Per Mertesacker. You and I share an opinion that he is a valuable man. Hopefully that's the right position for him, head of academy. But what they've done is they've seen that beyond what he achieved at Arsenal, because it can't be based on that, you've got a guy of enormous character, enormous um, vision and a, a bright football brain. And and that stands for both Henri and Vieira and, and it's and Adams too. It, it, it's, it's beyond me why Wenger was so against that. Edu is different. And I think Edu is a big fan of uh, Patrick Vieira. Uh, Vieira's niece right now are not necessarily pulling up trees in France, but it's my opinion that if there comes a stage this season when those who run the club, um, on behalf of Kronka, the, the majority shareholder, come to Edu and say, listen, we're, we're, we've lost faith or we're starting to just comb the market for alternatives for Emery, that the, the answer that they'll get will strongly be Vieira from Edu. And I don't think for a second Edu is going to try and unsettle Emery or get Vieira in before he's ready. But if that question comes to the guy who's supposed to be the, the pathfinder for Arsenal, then that's what Edu will tell them. And therefore Emery needs to look over his shoulder. It needs to be this season that, they're, that it's much less ebb and flow, that it's much less clear that if Arsenal are on a mixed day, they can score two but concede five or score three and concede four. And one of the key things they have to do up front, I, I believe, 
is keep Lacazette fit. Aubameyang, who probably is their best footballer, when fit, um, it's my opinion that he's a much better footballer um, in partnership with Lacazette. Not simply because it's got two strikers, but because there's a really good partnership there. They like playing together. They perform far, far more um, uh, efficient. There's a far higher likelihood that Arsenal will, will finish their chances when those two are in partnership. And if I look across the rest of the squad, my humble opinion is that they aren't good enough, that the squad and the, the first team are simply short of quality and character. And although Ganduzi looks like a storming success, and although Ceballos is, wins a lot of affection from people because he can play, you know, for me, in a great Arsenal side, he's player number 12 or 13. And I don't think they're good enough. And I think that's the the long and short of it. And, um, you know, our sponsors have asked, do I think that Emery lasts the season? If he doesn't, in my humble opinion, it's to do with the resources he's been given um, rather than him stumbling. OK, we're going to take a quick break now. Back soon with more of your questions. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. And this is not a two-part question, but the questions are linked. And the first part is from Socio Daryl Geraghty. Graham, do you have any insight into just how Griezmann has integrated into the Barca dressing room? Has Messi's stance softened with him after that video the year previously? Um, the last thing that Barca need is a divide. And secondly, Social Mark Young asking for your reflections on Messi occupying a more central midfield role. Um, but maybe first you could pick up on that Griezmann integration into the Barca dressing room. Mr G, um it's an interesting question and I'm lucky to have been fed really good solid information on it just, I don't know, 24 hours ago. Griezmann as a character is is um, not short of confidence 
but he's a little bit introverted. He's a guy quite happy in his own company. He's a guy obsessed by basketball and who'll spend, who'll, rather than um, be the, the, the life and soul of the dressing room or the, hey lads, let's have a, let's have a barbecue or um, like Suarez and Messier, let's, let's sort of uh, get the families together and let's pick up the kids from school together. That's not uh, Griezmann. He's far from antisocial. That's not at all what I'm meaning. And nor is he outright timid, but he's a guy who, uh, you know, uh, um, his exuberance is far clearer on the pitch than it is on the training ground or in the dressing room. He's close to Dembele. He's, you know, basically, aside from the fact that Dembele's talent is in inverse proportions to his ability to pay attention to anything or concentrate, you know, if, if, if he'd been a pupil at Cults Academy, uh, like I was in the seventies, he'd have had the scud. He'd have been belted even more times than I was. The, the, I just, he's so dippy. But him and Griezmann are really tight. Um, the same is true, I think, with um, uh, with Umtiti and Griezmann. And um, Umtiti is the opposite of Griezmann. And that's a slight posit for him because as soon as he's back, you know, permanently fit and not doing solo rehab, Umtiti is just so funny, so central to what goes on. Um, such a character. He's one of these guys who fills the room when he comes in. And Griezmann on those coattails can have an easier integration. I think nobody should think that, that Messi, although Messi wanted Neymar, and the simple arithmetic of that happening would be, if you get Griezmann, you can't have Neymar because of money. Um, I don't think at any stage Messi was, I don't like him, I don't want him, I don't value the way he plays. That's all crap. Crap sold to you by people who get um, a thread of fact and just kaleidoscope it to look like a slightly different pattern. Messi wanted Neymar. Messi told the president he wanted Neymar. Messi saw Neymar as the guy who could win the club another Champions League, which is Messi's number one goal right now. Whatever he says. And Griezmann is not in the same category as Neymar in terms of goal scoring. Just, it's as simple as that. So that doesn't mean that Messi was like, right, son, you know, you've, you've pissed me off by coming here. I'm never, but Messi is also, a, he's a, he's an individual, really, he's individualistic. He, he doesn't necessarily let new players in easily. And, if you're not, you know, super close with him, he can be uh, taciturn, extremely taciturn. Griezmann has done some things in training and in matches to begin to gently earn his spurs with Messi. But the best thing that's happened is Jordi Alba, having been out and coming back, having looked at the situation and watched the situation. And what I'm told is that Jordi Alba... Um, in the recent trip up to Abar, when because of the general strike at Catalonia, they had to go up a day early. And instead of everybody um, on the Thursday going home to their families, then coming together training Friday and then probably going up late Friday night or early Saturday morning, they would have to be late Friday night because it was a, it was a lunchtime kickoff. They, they go up on the Thursday and they all spend more time in an hotel up in Vitoria near Abar um, than they would have done normally. And Alba organises it so that Suarez, Messi and Griezmann sort of come to his room for, they all drink this um, South American bitter tea called Mate and it's spelled M-A-T-E 
and it's it's they find it addictive but it's also highly it's got it's it's a something about i don't want to say stimulant but it's got the type of effect that that tannin or caffeine can have on you in really strong tea or strong coffee and it's it's a taste that the south americans found addictive but it's it's a ritual thing that they share that's why you see these these metal cups to keep it or, or thermos cups to keep it warm keep it hot and straws now, because of Godin, the Uruguayan Atleti, um, because Mate is not a big thing amongst French sportsmen, but Griezmann was very friendly with Godin and got into Mate as a habit. Suarez and, and Messi, you know, dote on it. Alba arranged a little session there where over Mate in his hotel room, they began to talk about things like left-wing movement, um, you know, who comes in when, who goes outside when, um, how to link with how Suarez and Messi like being linked with what Messi prefers as pitch positions from the left forward. And if you go to um, the game at Abar, uh, it's no surprise that in the first goal, Griezmann plays like Neymar. Longley's left football. Longley's got a, an easy ball outside to Alba, a straight ball, street path, as we explain and take the ball, pass the ball is what they call that, a street ball, street pass to Artur, ignores them both, and left foot hoists it over, I think it's Tibiasi, anyway, it's the, it's the right back at Abar who slips, and, and Griezmann goes like Neymar, a ball that wouldn't have been allowed at Barcelona until Luis Enrique came and Neymar was in the side, and the longer ball, the, the direct ball was allowed. So Griezmann changed in that respect, but for the second goal, he starts in a sort of inside left position and comes in, looking for the ball, almost standing on Suarez's toes. And instead of that being enervating or, or raw to the Uruguayan, um, as he's turning, he sees he can't get a shot off, slips it to Griezmann, and Griezmann does what, what Charlie Rexat has called in coaching and, and taught Xavi and Villa about half-touch, the half-touch. Griezmann's touch is a half-touch. So there's two-touch, three-touch football, two-touch football, half-touch football, where... All you get is just, it's not even, a, it's like a suggestion of a touch on the ball. And and that is subtle enough. It was used actually in in the pass that, um, from Iniesta's pass into whoever it is. Is it, whose layoff is it to Eto'o in Paris against Arsenal? Is it Larson's? I think it's Larson's. It's a half touch. Um, yes. Because Larson makes the cross for Balletti yes, in the second goal. But if, okay, say it's Larson, then it's Iniesta's long raking ball. Larson's is just a half touch. And off goes Eto, onside or offside, Arsenal, you make the claims. But Griezmann produces that so that it just misses peeled off behind them and run round them. It's extraordinary when you look at it in, in slow motion. And, and Griezmann's on the wavelength there. And then finally, in the third goal, He's playing in left midfield. The ball, Junior wins it at right back. The ball comes into Messi, one touch. Then it's Busquets, I think, two touch. Then Artur, two touch. And then it's it's Griezmann, three touches. But three touches coming onto it from left midfield, pushing it out in front of the player who's trying to jockey him. And then a right football through to Messi. Griezmann's seen Messi's position. Messi's seen Griezmann's intention. And it's it's... Uh, a synchronicity that hasn't been that evident between them 
in the early weeks of Griezmann's time at Football Club Barcelona. So, Daryl, I think I've given you a, a picture of Griezmann's personality, um, a picture of how the relationship is, is being deliberately hothoused by a smart player in Jordi Alba, who's got a stake in it, not just because of trophies and how the team performs, but because Griezmann is largely going to be playing in Alba's area. So he's been really shrewd in bringing the three forwards together and kind of authoring this this Mate get-together. And, and you know, you, you could have different views on the evolution of things based upon their performance in Prague, um, but the Abar game told you the story of how things can be and and it was an evolution. So there's your Griezmann answer. Now, Mr. Young, what was what was Mr. Young's question? Yeah, he was he was talking about um, Messi occupying a kind of set, more central midfield role, which is, which is an interesting one because it's it's been fascinating to watch this kind of evolution of Messi's career, and you do see him dropping deeper and hitting these kind of Xavi-esque passes at times, and and you just wonder. Uh, 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 well, you know, that's the question, I guess. How how, how much could you see him developing that aspect of his game? Ah, I can't see it developing in that he's, been, he's had that nailed for two or three years now and he's the best midfield passer in the world. And I didn't see it first. I, there were other people around me who started saying years ago, yeah, next thing, will be, next thing is he'll be Chavi. I was like, God, yeah. And I, 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 you know, it's not that I disputed it. Other people saw that before I did. And then gradually it, it happened. And... As beautiful, as luxurious it is as it is to watch, um, you know, I see I see problems in that. Um, I see dead people. Uh, I see problems in that. Where we're talking about Messi playing, when he drops deep, he'll often be able to release Alba, or and then run for the second ball, run for the the wall, the long wall pass. He'll often ping a ball forward into Suarez's feet. And you've seen this since, again, I go back to the film that we've made, Take the Ball, Pass the Ball. If you look at the footage of him in a, in a, in a gravel blaze pitch in Argentina, even as a guy who's about two foot tall, he's knocking the ball forward into a pass, into an, a teammate. And he's on the run instantly in case the ball's not controlled, either by the intercepting defender or the pass. He's doing that at age six or seven and picking it up the second time. He's almost using the pass as a wall in that if it gets to its destination, <laughs> then brilliant. And if it doesn't, he'll be quicker mentally and, and athletically to, you know, that old thing George best used to talk about players who can control it further than I can kick it. Messi looks for those players with, with with concrete shins. And occasionally you see him flighting the ball over the top onto somebody's head or whatever. And his dropping deep is also to do what Xavi once did, which is to to, to draw people to him, to, to knock the ball around six or seven times and then pounce. All of that is functional and beautiful. But yeah, I do see problems. First of all, the image I have in my head is pre-halftime Barcelona-Liverpool camp now last season. Liverpool should be ahead. Um, I can't remember if Barcelona scored at that point or not to be 1-0 up. They might have done. They finished 3-0. And it's about 40 minutes and, and Messi and Suarez are leaning on their haunches. If it, it wasn't cold that night, but if it had been winter air, there'd have been grey clouds of condensation coming out of their mouths. Both of them are, are, are arms extended, leaning on their thighs. 
puffing. And it's partly age. In Suarez's case, it's partly the fact that he's just got a slightly unfortunate body shape to be ultra-athletic at turning 32 in January. And with Messi, you know, if you look at him in Prague, he, he worked his socks off. I saw more pressing and tackling in his own half than I've seen from Messi in the last six seasons. It's not that he's unathletic, but him playing that deep isn't simply because he can, because the team needs it, because it's strategically good. But we're we're beginning to notice a change in Messi. How many sprints he needs or can make, needs to or can make in a game. And that's natural. It's deeply unfair. Um, well, it'll be 32 next June, 33 next June, pardon me. So he's 32 now. And for somebody who's in marvellous shape, we've got we've got years of great things to enjoy. But but athletes evolve. And I think it's 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 a mix of all the things. And I go to the final point, which is when you're playing that deep, which is not quite a quarterback role, but it's a slightly deep laying number. It's like a false 10. If it was a false nine before, it's like a false 10 because it's deeper than where the traditional 10 might play. Hence the Neymar thing. There are two reasons that, that Messi said to Barcelona, get Neymar. One, for whatever, however he behaves, his goal record is, is astonishing. And he's good enough and lithe enough and quick-footed enough to score big goals on the road against big teams, which is what Barcelona lack. Secondly, he's got the pace that Suarez doesn't have. Suarez is still an utter, you know... Um, nuclear professor of the art of football in that his brain is as clever and as wily and as fast as ever, but his his legs and lungs don't react. And therefore Messi's not going to be letting loose his, his brilliant deep lying 20 meter passes for Suarez to run onto almost anymore. Suarez was clear in Prague uh, the other day and, and and was clear, clear and knew he couldn't even carry that sprint through on goal and stopped and turned and looked and waited. And that's just, a, again, that, that's how athletes progress and change. But Neymar was the one that Messi's, these, these brilliant heat-seeking passes can release beyond the way that they might uh, release, say, um, Jordi Alba or maybe Dembele, who, who you know, is just a, a flip of a coin about whether he's going to take advantage of it or not. And and hence the Neymar thing. So the, the, the Daryl, the deep line thing you see from Messi can be better still if it's complemented by a player who's as, as ultra rapid as Neymar is. And whether we see that between Messi and Griezmann, and I don't think we have seen that connection yet, the other way around, rather than Griezmann-Messi, which is what set up the third goal at Abar, that's the incognito to see whether more fruit can be harvested from where Messi wants to play now. OK, we're going to squeeze in one final question for this part one of the Q&A. And this is from Julian Ball Rodriguez. Um, Graeme, he says, with Busquets' days at Barcelona arguably numbered, do you think the Premier League would be a desirable option for him? If so, what team do you think would be a good suit for him at this stage of his career? Senor Rodriguez, um, Julian, if I may. Um, it's yeah, it's it's been a it's a subject that's hugely on my mind. He's got a really long contract at Barcelona, well paid, and I don't think he has any intention of of leaving. I wrote an article for ESPN recently talking about, and I read it for you guys, talking about the, the you know the player he most resembles is is the young Pep Guardiola, 
and and for different reasons because they're not identical by any means. But Guardiola felt that you know in a changing era, which is a little bit similar to what Busquets is going through, changing from the dominance of the Cruyff era through what happened with Van Gaal and and Robson. Guardiola saw around him by 2001, 2000, 2001, that um, the brand of football was changing and that the things he'd been so good at were becoming less relevant. And so a little bit burned out and partly with a coaching career in mind, he moved to try, he moved to play for Capello. He wanted to come to England and at that stage, nobody wanted him. Um, there was a little bit of a tickle from Alex Ferguson. Um, there were possibilities, didn't happen, went to Capello, went to Roma, that didn't work particularly, went to Brescia, I mean, it escapes me the name of the the coach he had there, but he loved working for the Brescia coach there. I should remember, I'm sorry. I don't, he, he'd specifically highlighted when, when the, all the options came in, he'd, he'd wanted Capello because he worked to learn about Italian defensive organisation. He specifically was like, well, if I work for him, then by the time I'm a coach, I'll have learned sufficient from Capello. But, you know, their relationship didn't flourish at that stage. He didn't get many games for Roma, blah, blah, blah. On he went. And, and, he had wanted to to take the skills he had to a league where he thought they could still be relevant to a club, to a team, and a league where he thought it could be relevant. And and there is an argument that Busquets could try to do the same. But in my opinion, the very things, the two things that have changed Busquets now, one, you know, who he's got around him. When he was at his athletic peak, he had Spain's two greatest midfielders next to him. And and no matter how good Vidal or De Jong or Sergio Roberto or Artur or Rakitic are, they literally can't be Xavi and Iniesta. It's not a pure quality comparison. They've just been trained differently. You know, that they, they speak a different language. So when that alters, that's bound to leave the one remaining piece a little bit less easy of a jigsaw fit to those left and right of him, potentially those in front of him too. And listen, I, I, it'll be, it'll befits me, you know, to talk about a turn of pace, but when Xavi called, you know, jocularly called Busquets out two and a half, three seasons ago in prop in public on social media, going like, I think Xavi was 36 at the time and he he, he tweeted something about, I could still outrun you to Busquets, who was at that stage 27. You can tell that it's okay. It wouldn't be popular if Busquets was in the room with me right now, but it's okay to say he wasn't born with tremendous pace. And there was that mad photo, wasn't there, in the summer on a hired boat in the Mediterranean where there was Christian Teo, um, Sergio Roberto, Mark Bartra, and and Busquets, and and it was, you know, it was, it was famous for when it was tweeted out. The three younger men were all pretty had all pretty bull physiques, you know. It was real six packs and muscular across the shoulders and the the biceps and the forearms and blah blah blah, and. Iker Casillas tweeted out like, "Pussy, your body's lamentable," and and people thought he was talking about like, "Is there a gut there?" Well, there wasn't, but he was like a pipe cleaner in modern footballing terms. 
he is the microcosm of the idea about it's not about height, power, physique. It's about brain, technique, vision, talent. And and I obviously in this I espouse that I believe in that I think it's why many of you are here on this on this big interview feed as socios or as new visitors that that is the the, the predominant idea but but football is changing and in the Jordy Morris clip that hopefully you can hear elsewhere on this feed certainly socios can I say in 2016 something that had seemed obvious to me for years that when a club training ground, a club coach manages to fully blend the absolute best of the, what I think is the Spanish school, which is, you know, the touch, position, brilliant passing, possession as a concept, wonderful three pass ahead thinking, that 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 intelligence and patience that is epitomized by the Cruyff Guardiola school of thinking, but as many disciplines, as many disciples, when somebody adequately blends that with everything that's made British football special over the years, which is about dominant physicality, utter will to win, relentless um, pace, relentless attitude to, to running down, intimidating, outworking the opponents... When that becomes a blend, then kiss goodbye everybody else. And when people learn habitually how to blend those two schools of football, then boy, oh boy. Uh, and Busquets is so predominantly in the one school of football that, in my opinion, it's really hard looking at the the speed at which the Premier League is played, that even, you know, a football intelligence genius like Busquets is, he's extraordinary in his awareness and his planning and his, if I do this now, I know what will happen in two, three moves and I'll be in this position now because I know what's coming to me in two, three moves. That's stuff you don't get regularly. But pff, irrespective of what team you, let's say you put him right into the middle of Manchester City's, Manchester City right now only bears sort of theoretical conceptual relationships to the Barca that Pep Guardiola coached. You know, it's it's almost Mark Four, Mark Five compared to to what we saw at Barcelona, in my opinion. And I find it difficult to see Busquets in the Premier League being as good as we'd like him to be for the remaining four or five years of his elite career. And Syria has changed, but I remember um, in the Sunus interview we did for this, uh, for the big interview, he he really turned my thinking around when he went, look, the, Syria was easy because he went to Syria and Sampdoria whereby it was reputed to be the, the meanest, most Machiavellian, sharpest, least giving league in the world. And of course, Graham, because he knew and was willing to restate <laughs> how brilliant he was, the slower things were in Italy. He just said, look, this is really easy for me because I was doing the things I did that made me brilliant at Liverpool, but everybody around me was doing things more slowly. They're doing well, doing relentlessly to a very high standard. But but I was thinking quicker because, you know, I'd have studs on my ankle six seconds, five seconds before it happened in Italy, in England. And therefore, now Syria has changed, but it feels to me 
that that Busquets could probably um, play and succeed in a really good, hard-working Serie A team where he had people around him who did what Rakitic did for a couple of seasons there, which is, you know, shotgun him. Rakitic was basically like you see on the table football where two guys are, are married by an iron bar. And Busquets was given shelter and protection by Rakitic's athleticism so that Busquets could do things that, that led them to, you know, advanced stages of the Champions League, make them, um, okay, repeat title winners, not in the Zidane year, but two out of the last three years, and 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 Spanish Cup winners. So in that situation, Serie A, maybe, maybe, and he'd add a lot of brains and talent. There's still, you know, when he's on the ball and when he's, well, when he's in a pocket, he's still exceptional. And there'll be teams who can't get at Busquets in... in in La Liga, which allows him to still do the things he's brilliant at. Um, entonces, Senor Rodriguez, yo diría que no. I, I would fear for um, Sergio Busquets at this age um, playing in the helter-skelter Premier League. OK, we're going to end there for now. There's lots more questions to come and they will be answered in part two of our Q&A available for you tomorrow. For now, thanks for listening and Graham, thanks for your time. Adios, amigo. Viva la Liga! Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.